We turn this morning to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. The first four verses will be our text this morning. I will not reread those. So verses 1 through 4 is our text. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven say, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. 
And he measured the wall thereof, and 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come today before that for which the church longs, the state of glory. The trials of our lives are many, and the way of the church is a way of many chastisements, many difficulties as the Lord prepares us for the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Today's text gives us a glimpse by the use of earthly pictures which eye cannot see nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man to conceive. The power of the opposition is now taken away. Antichrist and those who followed him have their place in hell as John sees this great picture, and the work of God's judgment has been finished. We stand with awe before the state of final glory. Notice with me then the state of final glory. We notice, first of all, its central idea, secondly, its universal scope, and finally, its perfect blessedness. First, then, its central idea. Upon the background of a new creation, John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, 
and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. You know, also when it comes to our consideration of the state of final glory, we have to guard against our own self-centeredness. We are selfish to the very core of our beings. And even when we break from our selfishness with regard to the things of this life and would look to spiritual things, we're still inclined to do so from the viewpoint of what's in it for me? What am I going to benefit from it? So that when we think of heaven and we think of this state of glory, we tend to think of it in terms of verse 4. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, and the former things are passed away. And we think, how wonderful for me. And that's certainly true. But that mustn't be our approach when we think of things spiritual. Rather, our approach should be that of that which John beholds. God must be first to receive all the glory. Only when we have spiritually seen the glory of God's work, and I want to emphasize only when we have spiritually seen the glory of God's work. It's not a matter of intellectual knowledge. Salvation never is. Only when we have spiritually seen the glory of God's work will we truly comprehend the blessedness that belongs to us whom he loves in Christ Jesus. And, and I don't even pretend today to get across to you the idea of our blessedness in that state of final glory. Nate has a better understanding than I do of what that's like, and yet... He doesn't see yet that state of final glory. And by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, the most that we can receive from this text is a slight taste of that which is incomprehensible to us who are still in this sinful flesh. The central idea of that glory is that of the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. The great glory of God, the great work of God, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is the heart of the hope of God's people. Is that your hope? That has been the hope of the saints throughout the ages. We read of the men and women of faith in Hebrews 11 that they saw the promises afar off and were persuaded of them and, con and embraced them and confessed that they were pilgrims and strangers in the earth. And so we read in Hebrews 11 verses 14 
through 16, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. That was the apostles' hope, too. That's why God gave the blessing of this vision to John. Is this your hope? If not, you wouldn't even begin to receive the comfort and blessedness of this vision. But on the other hand, when this is your hope, and this was Nate's hope, you taste the richness of this word of God. Again, against that, that glorious background of a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, John sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And the question is, what is that city, which is called New Jerusalem? We have to remember, first of all, that in the book of Revelation, we are dealing with visions, and more specifically, a vision of heavenly things. So things that go beyond our earthly comprehension. When we consider the highly symbolic nature of this text, every thought of a literal city must be ruled out. Think, for example, only of the shape and size of this city as given later in the chapter, verses 16 and 17. Who can even conceive of a literal city in the shape of a cube? And what kind of a literal city would be, half the, would be the size of half the United States? Besides, there are all the precious stones mentioned and the names of the 12 tribes engraved in the gates and the recurring multiples of the numbers 12 and 10, all of which indicate we mustn't think of a literal city, but but of a highly symbolic city. And so we need to have scripture interpret scripture. And let's notice, first of all, then we have here a city. A city is not a conglomeration of buildings. A city is a social unit of living citizens. People make up that city. And that, too, in the particular life and relationships which are denoted by the term city. A city does not consist of one person, but of a multitude of persons. And judging from the side of this city, an innumerable number of persons. In a city, the people live close together. 
They're not separated by miles and miles of, of ranch land, each having their separate existence. But they live next to each other in very close proximity. In the world, at any given time, the church appears as a little flock. But in heaven, she's seen as an innumerable multitude. God numbers every one. God knows us each by name. But the multitude there will be unfathomable. And in heaven, the unity of God's people will be clearly revealed. Beautiful unity is all the separation and disunity is anathema to the God who is one. And in that connection, I would have you notice that this city is holy. John saw the holy city. That is, negatively, it lacks something. It's a place without spot or blemish. No sin. But positively, this city is entirely consecrated to God. Given, given over to God's glory. All the life and activity in, that takes place in this city is consecrated to God. That means that all its citizens live in, in perfect communion, having fellowship with each other and seeking one another's welfare to the glory of God. In heaven, there's going to be no more of this wicked attitude, I'm going to live by myself and do my own thing. In heaven, not one of us is going to run away from his neighbor. In heaven, not one of us will be neglected by the man or woman sitting next to us. All that wicked individualism and selfish pride will be gone. There's none of that in the city that John sees. It's a holy city, a, a perfect society. And I want to return to that thought in a few minutes. Furthermore, I ask you to notice that John sees this city as it has been prepared by God as a bride adorned for her husband. There are not many figures in this world that are more beautiful than a bride adorned for her husband. But this figure of the bride does more than just describe the city. The figure of the bride identifies the city. Boys and girls, you know whose bride she is, don't you? This city belongs to Christ. And we read in verses 9 and 10, and there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. 
And you know from other scriptures, Ephesians 5, for example, 2 Corinthians 11, that the bride of Christ is the church. The angel is going to now show John that bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. You notice that means that the church is not in this city. This city is the church. New Jerusalem is the church, the bride of Christ. Christ, therefore, is everything in this city. He fills the whole city with his love and with his life. Through Christ, this city lives in fellowship with God. There's a relationship that can only be described as a perfect communion of nature, of life, of love. An absolutely beautiful city. That's a city which shows forth its heavenly character, shaped by God himself. Finally, concerning verse 2, we notice that John sees this city come down from out of heaven from God. Now, in the light of Scripture, that speaks of sovereign election. This city is a divine work. God is its author. It is the city that Abraham looked for, according to Hebrews 11, a city whose builder and maker is God. So the central idea of that state of final glory is the perfected church, the holy city called New Jerusalem. Now the heart of that New Jerusalem is expressed by that great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Beloved people of God, I don't even know what to say about this. It's something that I cannot even comprehend. I long for it more than you can see in this earthly flesh, but working on this text, I stood at a loss as to what to say about this. All I can do is call your attention to a few ideas that are expressed here and pray that the Holy Spirit will impress it upon your hearts and mine. We know so very little about the true idea of fellowship and communion with God and with each other in him. What John sees in this text is the perfected covenant of fellowship in its heavenly form. 
So far removed are we from that that John cannot do anything but call this city new, new Jerusalem. God dwells there. John sees the ultimate fulfillment of of all Old Testament prophecy. The promise of Jehovah God came through the mouth of the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 37, verse 27, My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Old Testament Jerusalem could only point to that. There God lived among his people. From there he had communion with them. From there he blessed them with all the blessings of salvation as foreshadowed in the ceremonies and sacrifices of the Old Testament law. But the presence of God in the Old Testament was limited to the temple in Jerusalem. God's presence with his people did not fill the city. He lived among them, but he did not yet dwell in them. And so the prophecy of Ezekiel looked ahead. The fulfillment of that prophecy began with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he died, the old Jerusalem passed away as it came to expression in the veil of the temple being torn in two. The city of God is not a city of brick and stone. No longer does God dwell among his people. He dwells in them. Through the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, God dwells in the hearts of his people and they know and enjoy his fellowship by faith. You do, don't you? But also this New Testament form of the new Jerusalem is still imperfect. And that imperfection is seen from two points of view. In the first place, here, God's presence does not fill the entire church, the entire institute. There are in the midst of the church hypocrites. And I guess I have to emphasize that for those who might take pride in the name Protestant Reformed, the same is true in our midst. Sometimes one can get the idea from individuals in our circles that being Protestant Reformed is synonymous with heaven. I think that attitude more than anything else makes people question and doubt what we are about. Although we don't know who are hypocrites in the church, anyone with open eyes can see hypocrisy 
an open walk in defiance of God's precepts. Don't forget, we must be thankful for the foundations of the truth which God has given us and continue to maintain and promote and to teach and preach and live the truth of the scriptures. And we are not to be ashamed of the distinctive truths that distinguish our churches. But even that rich foundation of biblical truth doesn't mean that there are not hypocrites in the midst of our churches. Unbelievers. In the line of continued generations of the church on this earth, there are unbelievers and hypocrites that sit among the people of God, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. And they shall all be exposed in that great day of days prior to the unveiling of the new Jerusalem where there are no hypocrites any longer. But in addition to the fact that there are hypocrites, unbelievers, in the church on this earth, the communion between God and his people, the believers in Christ, is not a perfect communion because sin still reigns in our members. That's why you see that, that terrible contrast between the holy city that John is given to see and the weak fellowship that we experience. As I mentioned earlier, all of us from time to time and some of us almost exclusively try to live our separate lives. Lives in separation from the church. We don't contribute to the, the upbuilding of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the midst of the congregation. Our brothers and sisters sitting right next to us are needy, materially or spiritually. And we either do not know it or do not care because we refuse to have any true fellowship with them come to church on Sunday, and then go our separate ways. And I say again, there's none of that in the church that John sees come down out of heaven. Because there, the perfected tabernacle of God is with us. And that means there will be a perfect likeness of God in us, so that we seek his glory and the unity of the body always. As the Apostle John expresses it in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, 
we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be righteous as he is righteous, holy as he is holy. We shall live with one another in the fellowship of perfection, loving one another with Christ in the midst. That's life in this city. God himself shall fill us, quicken us with his love, bind us to himself with unbreakable bonds of everlasting fellowship. There will be no more unbelievers, no more hypocrites, there will be no more hypocrisy, nor hatred of the brother. We shall stand in Christ as his beautiful bride, perfectly consecrated to God our Father. That will be glory indeed. That state of final glory will be of universal scope. John sees the fulfillment of that for which the whole creation groans as we read in John 8 verses 19 through 22. The whole creation takes part in the glorious liberty of the children of God. The final state of glory is set upon the stage of the new creation. Here too, the apostle is given to see the fulfillment of that which was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 66, verse 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. You know, we can so much enjoy various aspects of this creation. The last, the last couple weeks, we, we glorify God for the beauty of the creation in the autumn color that we see. We won't remember that. We won't remember that. So great will be the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. Nothing of the, the present form of this creation shall remain. That's the teaching of 2 Peter 3. The earth where sinful men like you and I have, have lived and labored and produced our goods, the earth where we have experienced sorrow and pain and death shall be passed away. And the heaven where once the devil had access to accuse the brethren, the first heaven shall also have passed away. That doesn't mean that this creation shall have been annihilated, turned into non-existence. Even when Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, verses, verse 10, that the heaven shall pass away with a great noise and the element shall melt with fervent heat, and also the works that are therein shall be burned up. That doesn't mean that everything will be annihilated, brought to nothing. Fire doesn't bring to nothing. 
fire changes the form. Fire changes the form of a board, for example, into ashes. Understand the first heaven and the first earth are under the curse. Under the influence of sin and the curse. And as the first heaven and the first earth have developed, they've been affected by that curse. Affected by all the sinful works of men, they cannot possibly survive as the proper sphere for the new Jerusalem and the tabernacle of God with men. They shall pass away, burned with fire, and so it shall be with all the works of our hands. How, how could the product of our sinful hands even fit in that new creation. They don't belong there. They'll be totally out of place. Take, for example, the cars out in the parking lot. The automobile is a product of our present civilization that's fitting for this present creation. The resurrection body won't need a car. We wouldn't even know what to do with a car in heaven. And so it will be with all the things of this earth. And then as children of God, you and I have to ask ourselves, why do I make such a big thing out of the toys of this present creation? They'll have no place in the new creation. The passing away of the first creation shall, shall bring about the new heavens and the new earth. As you have it in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 31, the fashion of this world passeth away. Just as when you burn wood, the substance remains, but the form changes, goes up in smoke and turns to ash. The matter of it's all there yet. So the saints remain and the creation remains also, but we will stand in glorified resurrection bodies, glorifying God in a renewed creation, perfectly fit for our everlasting home and our tabernacle with God. The overriding idea also of the glorious new creation is that it will be perfectly united in Christ. In that connection, I would call your attention to the statement in verse 1, the end of verse 1, and there was no more sea. The reference there apparently is not to the sea of nations as is sometimes the symbol in this book, but the reference there is to the literal sea just as the text refers to the heavens and the earth. The idea, however, is not that there will be no water in heaven. It's clear from Isaiah 65 all creatures of the creation, except the serpent, will be represented in the new creation, and also there will be water. 
But the reference here is to the old sea as it came under the curse of sin and the bondage of corruption. Since the time of the flood, the sea has constituted a barrier among nations and peoples. Not only is that true with respect to the wicked, that's true with respect to the church of Jesus Christ. We're physically separated from our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to fly some 8,000 miles over the sea to see our brothers and sisters in Christ in Singapore, for example. So because we're separated from our brothers and sisters in Christ in various parts of the world, we have to make an effort to remember them in our prayers, to remember the saints in Singapore and the Philippines and Myanmar and India and Australia and Northern Ireland and Germany and Africa and so on. And we often detract from God's glory by by failing to remember that his church is gathered from the length and breadth of the earth. In the new creation, that barrier of separation will be gone. Amazing. The universality of the church, which by the nature of this creation is abstract to us now, will be united in perfection. And as one glorious congregation, the multitudes of saints will live to the glory of God forever. One creation under one head, our Lord Jesus Christ. Everywhere we shall see Jesus. And in the face of Jesus, we shall see the face of God. I don't dare say any more about the universal scope of, of the state of final glory because when I read a text like this, I find out I don't know much theology. Certainly it's true that when we get to heaven, we're going to say, the half was never told us. The perfect blessedness of that final state of glory can only be described by comparing the present with what shall not be there. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. In the first place, God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. There are tears that flow from the depths of our souls when we are hurting. Time and time again, 
There are the tears which flow from God dwelling in our hearts and giving us to see the sorrow, the offense that we cast upon God by our sin. There are tears that flow as the consequence of death, even everlasting death. The tears spoken of here are tears that are shed because of the life of Christ in us. And those are the tears that are shed in the death time of the death of a loved one too, because they're reflective of our love for each other. There are the tears which flow from sinners saved by grace. Tears of the godly sorrow that worketh repentance. When those tears flow, because of your longing for the new Jerusalem, those tears are precious in God's sight. David writes in Psalm 56 that the Lord collects all those bitter tears in his bottle to save them until the days that he shall wipe them all away. What a blessed day that will be. There shall be no more death. Our present life is characterized by death. Death is so bound up with our present existence that we can't even think of a creation without death. Can't think of a world without death. There won't be death in the new creation. And because there will be no more death, there will be no more sorrow, nor crying, nor pain. And the reason is exactly because the former things have passed away. And the new things have come. All is forever permeated with life. The life of Christ. The resurrected Christ. Instead of death there's life. Instead of sorrow there's joy. No one in that new creation is ever going to say, I don't feel well. We shall be comforted. But finally, this means that that glory, that blessedness of the new Jerusalem will be so great that we will understand and experience what the Apostle Paul wrote In Romans 8, verse 18, when he said that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to that glory. So filled will we be with the blessedness of life everlasting and the blessedness of living in the fellowship of our Redeemer in that new creation that we will say, I would go through all that suffering again for this. There's no comparison. 
I thought I knew something about the life of heaven. I knew nothing. My eyes were too full of tears. Hold this city before you, beloved. Look to Christ. and See what he has accomplished and what awaits us in that new Jerusalem. Then you won't sit on the sidelines, you'll run the race. With your eyes fixed upon Jesus, this is your goal. The glory of God in the new Jerusalem. Don't let that disappear from your sight. Amen. Gracious Father, Apply thy word to our hearts by thy Holy Spirit. We contemplate things that go beyond our human understanding. We think about the glory that awaits us and our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us. And we realize that while those whom thou hast taken to glory experience now the joy of thine everlasting fellowship, they yet await this state of final glory that awaits thy church for Christ's sake. Impress that upon our hearts We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.